At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 21, Decolonization. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. So up to this point, most of our episodes and topics have focused on Europe and the North Atlantic. However, we're going to start to break out of this part of the world, examining other regions such as the Middle East, Africa, and Asia. However, before we begin looking at these regions and their role in the Cold War, it's important for us to examine the global political and cultural context of this period. The Cold War, like our own time, was built on previous historical eras and events, which informed and shaped the period. One of these key forces was Western European colonialism. By 1900, most of the world, minus Japan, the Ottoman Empire, Thailand, and Ethiopia, was under some type of direct or indirect Western rule. By 1945, these empires started to decline, and the world fundamentally changed. This process came to be known as decolonization and its story is fundamentally intertwined with the story of the Cold War. As the European empires collapsed, it solidified the bipolar nature of the conflict with the United States and the Soviet Union as the primary superpowers. Britain and France, the principal world powers of the 18th and 19th century, and early 20th century, slowly withdrew from the international stage. As these powers receded, the power vacuum they left in in their former colonies was quickly filled by the Soviet Union and the United States. The Cold War inevitably spread to these new nations as they tried to make their way in the world. Nor was the process of decolonization peaceful. It was often violent and fiercely contested. The imperial powers struggled bitterly to retain their colonies and many times resorted to terror and harsh repression to do so. These struggles often developed into civil wars as many colonial subjects remained loyal to their European masters and fought desperately against nationalist movements. When European empires could no longer hold these peoples through force, or they felt little value in keeping these colonies, they used elaborate ceremonies to save face in spite of the obvious decline of their influence in the world. When these new nations did achieve independence, they often inherited a political and economic mess. Often these new nations had several competing nationalities with their own desire for self-determination. This often resulted in ethnic cleansing and civil war. Their economies were riddled with problems. Colonial economies often were based around extraction with little industry and very little diversification. Trade imbalances, high unemployment, small bureaucracies, very few college graduates, and food shortages were a recurring issue, especially for places in sub-Saharan Africa. These nations also racked up huge debts to modernize their nations and or as a result of tyrants who lived lavish lifestyles. The IMF and their loans to former colonies in particular became very controversial during and after the Cold War, as many accused it of being a tool of neocolonialism. Another legacy of colonialism that was troublesome for these new nations was the military. 
These militaries were often, but not always, pro-Western, as they had been educated and brought up in the Western military model. Western leaders often identified with the military more than they did elected officials or indigenous groups. These forces were often uh, became the Western-backed dictators of their respected states after Western-backed coups. Both the United States and the Soviet Union saw it as imperative that their respective ideology manifest itself in these new nations. Every time a state succumbed to their opponent's ideology, they saw it as a defeat for their ideology and way of life. More importantly, the former colonial world experienced much more of the violence in the Cold War than Europe, the United States, or the Soviet Union. NATO and the Warsaw Pact never engaged in direct conflict, although they spent 40 years preparing for it. Whereas millions died in Korea, Vietnam, and throughout the numerous Cold War conflicts in the Middle East and Africa, not to mention all the internal revolutions, crackdowns, coups, and countercoups. Before we begin the process of looking at individual examples like Vietnam or the formation of Israel, it's important to step back and take a global long-term perspective about what was happening. Therefore, in this episode, we're going to look at how Europe became so dominant. Second, after being so successful for so long, how did these great empires just vanish in the span of a little over 50 years? Finally, we will explore a little more between how the process of decolonization and the Cold War informed each other, and we will also examine the political and ideological nature of empire in contrast to the nation-state. Empire is more or less a bad word in the contemporary lexicon. Both the United States, the Soviet Union, and nations in Africa, Latin America, and Asia saw empire as a negative and abhorrent thing. Even in popular culture today, empire is viewed in a negative light. Just look at the depiction of the empire in Star Wars. But empire as a political system is not modern, nor is it exclusively European. China, the Mongols, and even Japan in the modern period all established empires. Basically, an empire is a political authority that rules over a diverse group of peoples and regions, in contrast to, say, a nation-state, which in theory is a political unity of a single homogeneous people in an ancestral land with, a defi with defined borders, a common language, and army. The concept of national loyalty to an imagined community remained a strange concept to many people until the 20th century. So I'm sure many of you are asking, what about the United States and the Soviet Union? Are they empires? And the answer is yes. Drop for a moment, if you will, all the baggage that comes with that term. The United States was a nation composed of different peoples living in a vast land who all subjugated themselves not to a king or an emperor like the old European empires, but to a constitution or a social contract. Jefferson himself called America an empire of liberty. The people of America were united in their shared belief in the constitution and the equality of men. Obviously, America was flawed from the beginning. Slavery corrupted the republic at its founding, as a small group of elite, rich, white men ruled the nation. America was brutally racist, and yet the Constitution and the belief in the political equality of men became just as powerful, if not more so, than many of the other national myths. America, of course, had engaged in some classical colonialism during the late 19th century and the Spanish-American War, notably, taking Puerto Rico and the Philippines. After the Second World War, in an effort to gain access to markets and to contain the Soviet Union, the United States would expand its economic and military presence in the other countries uh, in the world in a form of indirect control, what some have termed neocolonialism. 
This new form of influence was less divisible and invasive than the old European colonialism and more controversial as the indigenous elites in many cases worked with the Americans. It often became muddled where American influence ended and American control began. The Soviet Union, akin to the United States, was built on an overriding ideological framework of communism that united the various peoples of the Soviet Union. National identities were recognized in the Soviet Union. Stalin, if you remember, was a Georgian. But these different peoples uh, bought into the Marxist system in theory. Again, in reality, however, the Russian ethnic group uh, came to dominate the new state and proceeded to subject other peoples such as Tartars, Ukrainians, Latvians, and many others to repressive rule as in Tsarist times. Jokingly, the Soviet Union was called the prison of nations. Eastern Europe, too, came to be politically dominated by the Soviet Union. It's true that these states had some autonomy under the Soviets, but their foreign and economic policy was directed by Moscow. When they refuted Moscow's orders, as in East Germany in 1953, Hungary in 1956, or Czechoslovakia in 1968, the Soviets sent in the tanks. The first question that is always thought but never broached in high school or even in college is how did the Europeans conquer most of the world? It wasn't until I got to graduate school that I first saw the question debated. I think the question feels taboo in many ways because it brings up many negative aspects of history like racism and slavery. However, before we tackle that question, I think it's important to highlight that Europe did not always dominate the world. Before the rise of European hegemony, there were roughly three major civilizations in the world, Europe, the Islamic world, and China. Of course, other civilizations were present at this time, in places like Africa and Japan, for instance, but I'm simplifying in order to illustrate the rise of Europe against other comparable civilizations that were either superior or comparable to Europe in the 15th century. Europe, after the fall of the Roman Empire in 476, had become an economic backwater in the political chaos that ensued. In the high Middle Ages, circa 1000 AD, a semblance of stable states or kingdoms were established. However, Europe was politically fragmented between not only different political states, but the Catholic Church, with, which exercised political power throughout Europe, often clashing with European kings. Additionally, even Europe's states were weak as they rested upon an economic system of feudalism, which created a confusing patchwork of semi-autonomous cities and principalities that operated independently and often fought against each other. The world economy by this time was primarily based around China and India, which had the greatest producing power and the greatest markets in the world as a result of having the most people. The Islamic world as well was extremely wealthy and technologically sophisticated with advances in the fields of mathematics and philosophy. Many people date the rise of Europe to the 1490s with Columbus's journey to the New World and Vasco da Gama's trip to India around the, cor the Horn of Africa. By this time, Europe had achieved some level of social cohesion and technological parity with the Islamic world and China. The population began to recover from the Black Death in the late 14th century, which killed roughly 40% of the population, and the economy began to grow rapidly with the expansion of commerce, improving farming techniques, improving banking methods, credit, and new business concepts. The Islamic world stretched roughly from Morocco and southern Spain in the west, across North Africa, the Middle East, Asia Minor, the Balkans, and Iran, and east with most of India under the great Mughal Empire. Islam, like China in the West, 
had a common faith, language, and a common book. Unlike the Christian West or Confucian China, in the Islamic world, farming was secondary, uh, of secondary importance versus trade and commerce. The Islamic world was very cosmopolitan. 14th century Cairo had a population of 600,000, far larger than any city in Europe. The Islamic world grew rich as they sat between the world's major trade routes. In the West, they received goods from Europe and from the East, goods from India and China. Arab traders also dominated the Indian Ocean, transporting goods between India, Indonesia, China, East Africa, and the Middle East. For nearly 500 years, many of the world's greatest scientists wrote in Arabic. Our numerical system, algebra, and chemistry were all Islamic inventions. However, the Islamic world had suffered some setbacks. The Mongols had sacked Baghdad in 1258. Like Europe, it had been devastated by the Black Death, and in 1400, Tamerlane sacked Aleppo and Damascus. The Venetians also came to dominate the trade in the eastern Mediterranean in the 1400s. However, the Ottoman Empire remained a force to be reckoned with into the 20th century. The Ottoman Empire was situated on Constantinople with its, with its uh, rich trade between the Europe and the East. In 80 years uh, after 1450, the Ottomans doubled the size of their empire in Europe. No less astonishing was the growth of their empire in North Africa and Asia. This success was based on Ottoman, the Ottomans' ability to maintain a large-standing professional army, a large loyal bureaucracy, and a skilled use of naval power and ruthless diplomacy. The Ottoman sultans used a system in which they taxed lands for their children. Seven to 8,000 children were, were essentially kidnapped from their parents every year from the Ottoman subject peoples. These children were either trained as bureaucrats or soldiers. This eliminated ties of kinship and made them totally loyal to the sultan. It created a core of ruling class whose outlook was imperial rather than local, ethnic, or religious, and whose loyalty was dynastic and not territorial. The other great Islamic state that surpassed the West was the Mughal Empire, a vast and rich empire that encompassed most of contemporary India. Its Islamic rulers were descendants of Genghis Khan. However, the rulers didn't project themselves as warrior kings, but as absolute monarchs of a diverse state. The Mughal Empire had roughly 100 million people and was far wealthier, wealthier than the Ottomans, exporting large quantities of foodstuffs, cotton textiles, tobacco, sugar, and indigo. At the core of the empire was a great service aristocracy that acted as the bureaucracy. These men were rewarded for their service through land revenues, meaning they received the taxes from the land but did not own it, nor could they exercise political control over these lands. Only the emperor's appointed officials could exercise power. In this way, the imperial center prevented the emergence of a decentralized feudal system like in most of Europe. Out of all of these civilizations, China was by far the most technologically, culturally, and economically advanced. Despite its periodic dynastic upheavals and foreign invasions, China had endured and prospered. China, however, like the Islamic world, felt the impact of the Mongols and was for a time ruled by them from 1271 to 1368. China also suffered from the Black Death as it reduced the population from about 100 million to 60 million. This did, however, weaken Mongol rule of China, and the Mongols were deposed in favor of a new Han dynasty, the Ming. The bureaucracy of this new dynasty was unique in the world. Its officials didn't gain position due to blood or specific family lineage, as in most of the world at this time. 
Instead, the Chinese instituted a system of tests which were used to select their civil service, thus allowing only the best to be selected. Thus, the imperial system relied less on hard power or state violence and more on cultural loyalty of the local elites whose identity and status were wrapped up in the imperial system. The emperor was also surrounded in court by eunuchs who in theory would remain completely loyal to the emperor as they could have no families of their own and could be trusted to care for the emperor's harem. China economically and culturally flourished during this period. Its major cities dwarfed those of Europe. The skills of its engineers and artisans and consumer goods were unmatched. Silk, tea, and porcelain were highly sought after luxuries in most of the world. Confucius' ideology and culture were widely admired in Asia, as Korea, Vietnam, and Japan all imitated and followed Chinese fashions, thought, and culture. So the question of why Europe became the dominant force in the world is a complicated and highly debated question, and there are several good arguments out there. This is my short explanation for why the West rose to predominance. So if you disagree, that's great. I would love to hear, hear why, so feel free to email me about it. There are seven main reasons why the West overcame the other civilizations of the period. Low birth rate, the Enlightenment, shipbuilding or maritime technology, warfare, capitalism, the conquest of the Americas, and the Industrial Revolution. These seven causes are not inherently because of European genetic makeup and European dominance of the world wasn't a predetermined historical outcome. It took nearly 300 years for Europe to achieve its hegemony over the world, and it wasn't as ironclad as you may suppose. A lot of history is chance, and things might have turned out differently for for the world in Europe if circumstances had played out different or leaders had made different decisions. The first reason, number one, low birth rate. Europe had a low birth rate in comparison to China or India, and its women waited longer to have children. Indeed, many European women uh, became nuns and never had children at all. The European lands were also much harder to farm, and war and famine were endemic. In comparison, the Yangtze in China alone deposits more silt than the Nile, Amazon, and Mississippi combined. Rice, the staple of China, is a tough grain versus European wheat, rye, and oats, delivering higher yields even in poor soil. Rice was also labor-intensive, which led to high birth rates and hence a larger population to work the rice fields. China's weather also allowed for three or four harvests a year versus the one or two of Europe. In the pre-modern world, production was intimately connected with population and human labor. Asia fundamentally had a large population and hence a larger pool, which Europe struggled to compete against economically. Moreover, as a result of European wars and the settlement of America, the demand for labor continued to grow in Europe. They just never had enough people to compete with Asia. Hence, the drive or need for labor always was there. Two, the Enlightenment. Starting in the late 17th century, European thinkers, as a result of the Renaissance, which reintroduced reason, and the Reformation, which weakened the bonds of religion in Europe, caused European thinkers to begin to question everything, from the forces of nature, our place in the heavens, to the ideal society. The Enlightenment gave rise to concepts of individual rights, freedom, liberty, rationalization, urbanization, secularization, the nation-state, and many more we take for granted today that shape the way people thought about themselves and others. This should be viewed in contrast to the pre-modern or medieval period. During much of this period, feudalism reigned. Most people lived in some type of fealty or loyalty to some lord or church official. Religion played a much greater role in the shaping society and life. Most people had very little individual freedom, 
and lived and worked in an agrarian setting. The Enlightenment also saw the way societies were organized changed, giving birth to modern democratic government and bureaucracy. Rational self-government and efficiency were emphasized over concepts such as divine right or autocracy. 3. Maritime Technology In the early 15th century, China was more advanced than Europe in maritime technology. From 1405 to 1431, the Chinese undertook at least seven voyages to Indonesia, the Indian Ocean, and East Africa. These voyages were aimed to show the greatness of China. The ships were probably the largest in the world, with the biggest being about 400 feet long and 160 feet wide. In contrast, the Santa Maria is about 85 feet long. However, there is some debate about the size of the vessels. In the 1430s, a new Chinese emperor ended the voyages as a new crowd of Confucian mandarins argued that the expeditions were a waste of resources. The Ming also faced the challenges on their northern border and later with Japan that sapped the regime's wealth and resources. European seafaring abilities during this period were strong as they had been trading across the Mediterranean and the North Sea for at least a thousand years. However, they also had an economic drive that the rest of the world did not have. Europe's trade with China and India had to traverse long distances across Islamic lands, and the Arabs and Persians added tariffs to these goods. When these goods finally reached the eastern Mediterranean, Venice and Genoa would add their own duties, pushing the prices even farther. These routes were often interrupted as well due to political instability, war, disease, or natural disasters, and bandits who preyed on the caravans. The Portuguese solution to this problem was sailing around Africa and out into the Indian Ocean to reach India itself, which took about 17 years and multiple journeys before Vasco da Gama achieved this. However, when the Portuguese arrived, they soon discovered that they had little to trade, so they turned to extortion. If local Indian, Persian, Arab, or African kingdoms didn't pay up, their ships would be seized by the Portuguese. Eventually, Portugal took control of trade in the Indian Ocean, controlling the regional sea trade routes. For a time, Portugal, a nation of a million, succeeded in imposing its will on the Chinese, Arabs, and Venetians who had long plied these waters. They traded weapons and tools to Africa, silver and gold to China, Chinese goods to Japan, and spices and silks back to Europe. From spices to slaves, they conducted business around the world through some 50 settlements that they defended against all comers. By the 18th century, Europe had taken control of most of the world's sea lanes, even on the regional level. Very little could be transported internationally without them. European ships traded in the, Ameri the Americans, Arabian, Indian, and Chinese ports. No Chinese or Indian ship traveled to the New World or European ports. Indeed, no Chinese ship traveled to Europe until 1851. Number four, warfare. The European states fought against each other and the Islamic world constantly, Warfare became sort of a European specialty. Now, that's not to say that the Islamic or Chinese armies were inferior, but the West engaged in warfare more often. China had invented gunpowder, but the Europeans perfected its use in warfare, first with cannons and later with matchlock muskets. This might have been because of Europe used gunpowder mainly in siege warfare against towns and castles, whereas the Chinese used gunpowder to scare the nomadic tribes north of the Great Wall. Gunpowder was pivotal in the conquest of the Americas and, and Northern Asia. Like the Europeans in the New World, the Russians used gunpowder to spread their empire east to great effect. Some have argued that Russia is an Asiatic civilization or a mix of the West and Asia, but I would contend that Russia is squarely in the Western tradition. 
Many Russians saw themselves as the Third Rome after the fall of Constantinople in 1453. The Russian use of the Greek alphabet, their Christianity, and the Russian elite after Peter the Great, that always saw themselves as Western, is why I place Russia in the Western tradition. What's different about Russia versus other Western states is that it was the only Western state occupied by an Asian power, the Mongols, and that serfdom lasted much longer in Russia than in Western, the rest of Western Europe. Nevertheless, Russia advanced Western rule over the Northern Asia and the Great Steppe, making it all the way to America, crossing the Bering Straits into Alaska. The Russians captured this vast area and subjugated its people long before the Chinese or Japanese could. Gunpowder played a big role in subjugating these native peoples there. Although the fact that these lands were sparsely populated by politically weak tribes also helped. Even by as late as 1760, the Russian male population in Siberia amounted to no more than some 400,000. Nevertheless, unlike the Spanish, the Russians were not mistaken for gods. Moreover, the peoples of the Central Asian steppe were more organized and put up greater resistance. Despite Russian success, the Russian frontier of the, of the Volga remained violent. Tartars continued to raid from Crimea and even raided the Moscow suburbs as late as 1592. Peter the Great moved Russia to become even more Western, with a large standing army and navy like many other Western states. By the 18th century, Europe was spending vast amounts on armies and navies. Military spending during this period accounted for some 54% of the public budget. European armies grew rapidly in size after the 1660s. The French army peaked around 400,000 in, in the 1690s, whereas France only had a population of roughly 21 million people, which means that 19% of the population was under arms, which, if I had the data, I'm sure is a crazy high amount of the adult male population. Britain and Holland, both smaller nations, kept armies of over 100,000 men. To put that into perspective, the U.S. has less than 0.5% of its population in the military today. It's true that the Ottomans, Chinese, and Mughals could still raise larger forces, but the Europeans were mobilizing far more of their, their people and economy for war. European armies, on average, were more professional, with the gradual introduction of common uniforms, drill, and a professional officer corps versus the use of part-time aristocrats as officers and farmer conscripts. European armies developed into highly specialized machines to fight each other and were very formidable in the field of battle, even when outnumbered. The Europeans relied on firepower, cannon, and musket volley to win the day. However, the Europeans were not invincible. This was painfully apparent between the British Army and Native Americans in the 1750s. However, the power of European warfare was undeniable and would grow even greater with the Industrial Revolution. In 1500, European powers controlled about 5% of the world's territory. By 1775, European powers controlled 35% of the Earth's territory. Number five, capitalism. Capitalism is a social, economic, and cultural system that developed in Europe that respects private property, the economy, the economy was primarily decentralized, trade and industry were primarily controlled by private ownership, and was for profit rather than the state. Legal jurisprudence was used to resolve business disputes and limited the power of the state to interfere with the market or private businesses. Capitalism made the acquisition of wealth one of the major or primary features of life. Most men no longer traveled great distances on pilgrimage to save their souls, but now to make a profit and become rich. 
Young men left home and joined the joint stock companies like the East India Company or traveled to the gold rush in California. Anyone could become rich. Many people failed and did not become rich, but the dream and ambition was there. Meanwhile, with the absence of a free market and property rights in China, it helped to falter the economy. The Chinese state was always interfering with private enterprise, taking over lucrative activities, prohibiting others, manipulating prices, extracting bribes, curtailing private enrichment. Capitalism and European imperialism fundamentally altered the world, physically as well. As well. They changed the landscape to fit its purposes. Whole forests were clear-cut, and cash crops like cotton were planted around the world, from South Carolina to Bengal. Diamonds and silver mines were constructed across the Americas and Africa, where thousands perished. Meanwhile, whole species of animals like the dodo bird and the passenger pigeon were hunted to extinction. The Suez and Panama canals were constructed to speed up maritime traffic around the world. Great cities were built where none had existed before, like Boston, New York, Mumbai, formerly Bombay, Hong Kong, and Singapore, to name a few. People also immigrated around the world. Millions of Europeans immigrated to the Americas, Africa, and Australia. Indians, Chinese, and Africans also traveled around these empires as well, living and working thousands of miles from home. 6. The Conquest of the Americas The conquest of the Americas by the Europeans nearly doubled Europe's territory with all of its available land and its vast natural resources. Trade among the British colonies in North America, Europe, the Sugar Islands of the Caribbean, and the coastal trading ports of Africa created a vast and dynamic economy in the North Atlantic. The conquest of the Americas also gave the Europeans large quantities of silver and gold, which were used to buy goods in India and China, as India and China had little need for most European goods. This ultimately led to global inflation as the treasures from the New World, uh, world funded Spain's wars. This gold and silver was then spent in China and India, dramatically increasing the money supply in those states as the Europeans suffered from a trade imbalance. The greatest weapon the Europeans had in the conquest of America was disease. It's estimated that around 1492, when Columbus arrived, there were about 100 million people living in the Americas, and it's estimated that disease killed about 90%. This didn't happen all at once like some type of super weapon, but its effects were devastating, and tribes which came in contact with Europeans quickly felt its effects. So you might be asking the question, why wasn't Europe and Asia devastated by diseases in the New World? The answer to this question is that in the old world, Europe and Asia had far more unhygienic towns and more domesticated animals. Most towns in Europe packed people together in tight living conditions. Sewage, uh, feces, animal and human ran open in the streets. Europeans lived in close proximity to pigs, goats, dogs, and cows, animals which carry pathogens. These pathogens eventually jumped hosts from animal to humans, leading to the deaths of millions. Mesoamerica, in contrast, had few cities and were more hygienic and had no domesticated animals outside of dogs and llamas, so the people of the Americas had built up fewer antibodies and immunities to, the, to diseases. The other advantages uh, that Europeans had was in warfare over the Native Americans. The Europeans had guns, cannons, horses, and steel versus the clubs and obsidian blades of the Aztecs and Incans. They also fought in a very different fashion. The Spanish fought to kill their enemies, whereas the Aztecs fought to capture and sacrifice their enemies. Hence, as a result, the Aztecs suffered more casualties. The Spanish were also lucky in their conquest of the Americas. 
Early meetings between the Aztecs and Spanish and Incans confused them about the nature of who the Spanish were, men or gods, and what they wanted. This allowed the Spanish to achieve a decapitating move at the start of each campaign, killing both the Aztec and Incan leadership. The Aztecs, moreover, ruled central Mexico through a system of intimidation and ritual human sacrifice. The tribes around the Aztecs were quickly were quick to join with the Spanish in overthrowing this brutal regime. Disease, again, limited the abilities of these societies to offer continued resistance after the initial shock of defeat. It should be pointed out, though, that at this point, these uh, victories probably could have been achieved by the Chinese or the Islamic world. Europe had not yet achieved military superiority over those societies. Number seven, industrialization. Capitalism spread to production and the subsequent industrial revolution in many respects began in agriculture first. Farmers in Holland realized that they could abandon the medieval practice of leaving a third of their lands to lie fallow each year to regain nutrients. Instead of the fallow rotation, they divided their land into four parts, rotating fields of grain, turnips, hay, and clovers each season. Not only did this increase the number of uh, tilled acres by a third, but the the clover-fed livestock after it had enriched the soil with nitrogen deposits. The English copied the Dutch and succeeded in making their agricultural base feed more and more people with fewer laborers and less investment. Unlike the Dutch, the English had enough arable land to grow the grains that fed the people as well as their livestock. To illustrate the impact of this, in 1520, 80% of the English population worked in farming. 100 farmers could produce enough food to feed 125 families. Those 25 extra families constituted the English military, clergy, royal officials, and everyone else in non-farming activities. With the advances in farming from 1600 on, fewer and fewer people were involved with farming. By 1800, one farming family grew enough for 60 other families. Before the 1700s, the world's population had expanded and contracted for 3,000 years. But since that time in the mid-18th century, the world's population has continued to expand to the present era. Despite the use of slaves and stimulants like coffee and sugar and tobacco to have people work longer hours, there was an ever greater demand for labor power in the economy. Stimulants were a stopgap and could not grow the labor force, and wages were relatively high. Slaves were costly to acquire, keep alive, and once one faced the danger of rebellion, not to mention the ethical questions surrounding slavery. This gave push to uh, inventors who began a technological saga to harness machines to do the work of man and animals. Drawing on 17th century scientific experiments and hydraulics and hydrostatistics, these pioneer engineers designed mechanical slaves which could harness energy. England was also helped by a plentiful supply of cheap coal, which was used to fuel their industry and was generally more efficient than burning wood, which could be conserved for the building of ships. Banks also played a critical role in the Industrial Revolution as they funneled capital into industries, making savers into investors. Banks were able to aggregate the wealth of their customers, lending those funds to businessmen to make investments and build companies. Now the Europeans, with the aid of machines, could outproduce the Asians despite their larger populations, making their goods cheaper and better quality. This made Europe even more wealthier when coupled with their control of the world's sea lanes, although much of Europe, especially southern and eastern Europe, remained relatively poor. Europe, and above all Great Britain, became the world's main supplier of capital. 
The networks of trade, profit from industry, and expanding infrastructure of railroads, canals, and harbors increased the volume of trade. Most of the world was reduced to providing raw materials to Europe's industries. Europe's armies won victory after victory. India fell to British rule by the 1850s, although parts of India, like Mysore, remained nominally independent, and China was defeated and humiliated in a series of wars that began in the 1850s with the Opium Wars and ended in 1900 with the Boxer Rebellion. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to tell your friends or spread the word about us on Facebook or Twitter. As you can imagine, me and my colleague, David Force, uh, invest a lot of our personal time and resources in bringing you the show. Buying books, recording equipment, hosting the podcast, and the website all adds up. The average episode takes about 10 to 15 hours of work to create. Don't get me wrong, I love making the show, but a little financial help would help us to produce a better show and help lighten the burden on us a little. So if you enjoy the show, please help support us through Patreon on the website so that we can keep the show coming to you. Even a small donation can go a long way, so check out our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. So now back to the show. So why did China and the Islamic world fall behind the Europeans? The first reason was the end of the Chinese maritime expeditions in Southeast Asia and the Indian Ocean. The end of these voyages virtually ceded the world's sea lanes to the Europeans. The Chinese shifted away from a systematic investigation of the world and closed in on themselves. This may partly have been to blame on what economists call the high-level equilibrium trap. The very efficiency of its pre-industrial society discouraged radical change. Indeed, China's canals were so efficient, many Chinese officials argued against the introduction of trains in the 19th century because it already had a system of canals for transport. The Ming economy grew quantitatively, but not qualitatively. China had reached such a level of greatness and wealth, it saw very little reason to explore the outside world, as the outside world offered very little to China. Europe, in contrast, had a great demand for products from the Far East and India. The more dangerous effect of this success is that most Chinese didn't notice how far they had fallen behind until the mid-19th century. At this point, it was virtually too late as they were being pummeled in the Opium Wars. The Ottoman Empire came to suffer from poor leadership as the sultans came to waste their days away in the imperial harem, which led to issues around corruption. The larger issue, however, was the loss of tariffs from the trade routes that used to flow through their lands. European naval supremacy also led to a loss of Indian Ocean trade as the Europeans sailed around their lands to deliver goods to market. By the 19th century, with the Industrial Revolution, the Ottoman Empire became a source of raw materials for European markets. The Ottomans conceded trading privileges to the European merchants, which exempted them from paying tariffs, which led to European merchants taking control of the Ottoman domestic markets. Growth of a more conservative and restrictive Islam also crippled the Ottoman intellectual class as little interest was shown in empirical inquiry or the adoption of foreign ideas. Europe's multiple languages also caused difficulty for the Ottomans to adopt Europe's ideas. The Mughals were virtually gone by the 19th century. The reasons for the fall of their empire are highly debated, but in my opinion, the empire became overextended, uh, and the expenses of Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal along with several other great major construction projects, such as the Great Mosque. 
in addition to a series of wars with the Maratha, led to an inability to pay their, their nobles and hence their bureaucracy, which led to a collapse of their empire in the first half of the 18th century. The defeat of Napoleon in 1815 also ended the long series of European global struggles that had begun with the War of Spanish Succession in 1701. There were other European wars in the 19th century, such as the Crimean War, the Wars of German Unification, and the Franco-Prussian War, to name a few, but these conflicts remained local and never drew in all of Europe. Hence, the Europeans had time to concentrate on expanding and cultivating their empires for roughly 100 years from 1815 to 1914. In general, there, the world has gone through five waves of decolonization. The first occurred after the, eight, the Seven Years' War between 1775 and 1820. The Seven Years' War led to a, we, a weakened France and Britain, which resulted in the American Revolution and the Haitian Revolution. The second wave occurred in Latin America after the fall of the I Iberian Peninsula to Napoleon in 1808, which weakened Spanish and Portuguese control of the New World. Indeed, for a time, the capital of Portugal was even moved to Brazil. The third wave was the aftermath of the First World War. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, Germanic, and Russian empires collapsed. Woodrow Wilson introduced his 14 points and argued for the self-determination uh, for European peoples. Many non-Western leaders, though, like Ho Chi Minh, championed the cause of self-determination and argued that their nation should be free from imperial rule. Ireland also achieved independence, the first crack in the British Empire. Many educated Europeans also started to question the whole empire project as well, both in terms of its cost and its ethics. The fourth wave uh, happened in the wake of the Second World War, which we will be examining in detail. The final wave, of course, occurred in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Empire. The similarity between these waves is that they seem to have occurred after, the global, after global wars and the weakening of what Wallerstein called the global core. Second, all these waves were built on each other. The Latin American states were influenced by the American Revolution, and the fourth wave was influenced by the concept of self-determination in the third wave. So why did these great European empires come to an end after World War II? So there are two primary reasons why these empires failed, economic and ideological. After the First and Second World Wars, as we have seen, Europe was virtually bankrupt. Their nations were devastated, and many, like France and Holland, had been occupied. Only Great Britain retained any real strength, but the Europeans didn't give up on their empires and quickly moved to reassert their rule. The other major cause for their fall was ideological. The ideas of modernity and the nation-state had spread to their colonial subjects. Many of their colonial subjects wanted to live in their own nation-state and were not, not as some dependent on some far-off metropole in Europe. Many of the leaders of the nationalist movement and the wider anti-imperialist movement had been educated in the West. Franz Fanon's seminal work, Wretched of the Earth, 1961, was first published in France and shortly after Great Britain and the United States. It wasn't published in Algeria, the book's subject, until 1987, some 25 years after the revolution. Moreover, these leaders wanted the human rights that the European empires professed. The Europeans also found it more difficult to justify their imperial rule internationally. Racial superiority was no longer in vogue after the horrors of the Holocaust. European powers during this period tried to change the face of their empires to one of social justice as they tried to extend their welfare states to their wider empires. 
Infrastructure and social welfare projects were offered as a method by which they could justify empire in the late 20th century. The funds for these projects and programs were, however, always limited as they were still struggling themselves. Other European powers like France and Portugal tried to justify their rule by arguing that their former colonies were a part of their metropole now, and hence their national territory, while others tried to justify their rule via their technological advancements versus the supposed backwardness of their colonial subjects. However, the myth of Europe's military and technological superiority was broken. Japan had defeated British, Dutch, and American armies in World War II, forever shattering the idea around Western racial and technological superiority. Colonial forces had also served in Europe, fighting against and killing Europeans. So if African and Indian soldiers could kill Germans, they could certainly kill their French and British white masters. The Americans initially during the early Cold War, like the Soviets, wanted to see a breakup of the old European empires. The Americans didn't see themselves as an empire as they had fought a revolution to free themselves of British rule. Nevertheless, as the Cold War heated up and expanded, the Americans took a more pragmatic approach, propping up the European empires when it fit into their overall strategy of containing communism. The Soviet Union, of course, backed the collapse of the European empires and became a major source of support for a number of revolutionary movements. Marxism also became a force within many revolutionary movements against colonialism, but Marxism cut both ways. European powers frequently painted nationalist movements as communists to gain American support in retaining control of their colonies. Europe also faced the issue of settlers. European settler populations, especially in Africa, refused to leave or cede their holdings to the indigenous African people without a fight. This led to several bloody struggles, which was also intensified with the Cold War. In many ways, the death of the apartheid South Africa was heralded with the fall of the Soviet Union. Western support for the racist regime dried up after the threat of communism in Africa disappeared. As these colonies collapsed, their settlers returned to their nations of origin. However, former colonial subjects started immigrating to their former occupiers as well. In all, some 16 million immigrated to Europe. Algerians and sub-Saharan Africans immigrated to France, whereas other Africans and Indians immigrated to Great Britain, which flared racial tensions and the rise of politicians like Enoch Powell, who, which has continued to cause tensions into the 21st century. Another legacy of resistance to spring out of the Cold War and anti-colonial movements was a rejection of everything Western, as Western cultural items and ideas were deemed cultural imperialism. These nations and societies attempted to rewrite and eradicate history by banning and or destroying anything Western, as during the Cultural Revolution in China, or Mobutu did in the Congo. Today we can see this legacy in South Africa, where some want to ban science from the school because of its Western origins, or how the student newspaper at the University of Pennsylvania want to ban Shakespeare in the classroom. Other student groups at the University of London want to ban Western philosophers such as Plato, Descartes, and Kant from the curriculum because of their Western origin. Memory of decolonization and of what actually happened has hence become a very controversial subject with different groups wishing to shape the narrative of these events to fit contemporary arguments. However, as we examine these different struggles, we will try and get to the real truth of what happened, disconnected from any contemporary political or cultural agenda. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 21, Decolonization. 
Next episode, we will explore the, the Indonesian Revolution and the fall of the Dutch East Indies as we look at one of our first colonial struggles in the Cold War. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends into history but still want to help us, give us a positive review in, in iTunes or whatever platform you prefer. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution in supporting the show, please go through Patreon on our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there so you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.